Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. <clears throat> See, I got to warm it up again. We'll be all right, I promise. Our reading this morning is from Mark's Gospel, uh, chapter 6. It's two scenes. Both of them are probably familiar to you if you uh, are familiar with with, uh, scriptures. Uh, And so let's start. We're actually, it's printed for you beginning in verse 32 through verse 52. I actually want to start in verse 30. So if you have a Bible, that would be helpful if you want to grab one really quick so you can see. Uh, because the, the section actually starts in verse 30. That was a misprint on my, on my part, so forgive me for that. But we're going to read beginning in verse 30 about the feeding of the 5,000 and then Jesus uh, walking on the water. So let's, let's read together. Beginning uh, in Mark 6, verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while, for many were coming and going. They had no leisure even to eat. And then picking up in verse 32, And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when when he went ashore, that is Jesus, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go to the surrounding villages, countryside, and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii's worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, well, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in the groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida, where... While he dismissed the crowd, and after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them, and he said, Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. But their hearts were hardened. This is the word of the Lord. Would you say with me, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Okay. We've been making our way through Mark's gospel, and one of the things you have to remember about Mark's gospel is Mark highlights Jesus' action, his doing. There isn't much about the teaching of Jesus here. It's, it's all action. It's just one long action sequence. And at the beginning of this chapter, Jesus sent out the 12 disciples. This is verses, six, verses 7 through 13. He sent them out to carry out the ministry that he had been doing in all the various parts of the land. And we should learn from that incident that he intends to send us out too. He intends, if you're a follower of Jesus, to put you to work. Christianity is not a spectator sport. It's a call to act, to walk in his ways. And so you see we've titled this series from Mark's Gospel exactly that, Walk in His Ways. 
In John's gospel, Jesus said this. He said, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and even greater works than these will he do. Now, make, let that lay it on your heart. He said, if you believe in Jesus, then you will do the very same things in the same way that Jesus is doing them, and even greater things than he has done. Here's what that means. Following Jesus as a disciple of Jesus. Following Jesus means a busy life. Which also means it's absolutely crucial that we learn the other part of this, and that is the way that he invites them here away from that to unplug for time, away into the desolate place to be with him. And this is how this particular part of the passage begins in verse 30. It had been a very busy season of ministry for Jesus and his disciples. Mark says that there's so many people... He talks about the people coming and going, and it says in verse 31, and I wish so badly we had it printed, but if you, if you can find a way to get your eyes on it, in verse 31 it says, there were so many people, such a volume of people coming and going in and out of the day-to-day of Jesus and his disciples that they could not find time to eat. They had no leisure, it says there in verse 31. They couldn't even find time to take a break. It was like, it was like an episode, you know, like the, the craziest episode of ER, but always. No time to take a break. People everywhere, coming and going, so much so they had no leisure. And that word leisure is really important in verse 31. It actually is interesting. It's a Greek word uh, that is one of two Greek words that is used to, uh, that's translated time. It's the Greek word kairos, which is translated time, but then with a prefix attached to it, which just means good or pleasant. And so literally, Jesus says there's so many people coming and going. Their life has been so busy and so full and so hectic from all of the demands of the crowds that they had no good time. There are actually two Greek words, as I said, which are translated time. The one, two kinds of time. The one is chronos, it's a, it's, which is time of clock and calendar. Time is a gauntlet, chronological time, purely quantitative from one thing to the next to the next from the Greek god chronos who gorged himself on his own children to describe what time can feel like, the onslaught of time. And then there is kairos, which is another, a whole different Greek word, also used to translate, to describe time, which is good time, special time, set-apart time, qualitative, holy, Sabbath, right? What, so let's just, let's just call it, there is the, the urgent, and then there is the important. And what we learn as this text is being set up for us is the days here with Jesus and his disciples were so filled with so many urgent things that they had begun to lose time to invest in the important stuff. Just urgent, right? I mean, does anybody, do you ever, do you ever live there? Like just urgent, like all the time. Stuff going on, people coming and going, and you're not able to set aside time for the most important things. And that's no way to live. That's no way to live. And so in verse 31, Jesus comes to them after this long, busy period of ministry. And he says to them, this is verse 31, come away by yourself to a desolate place and rest. He invited them out of the hectic, you know, just onslaught of the chronos that they had been engaged in into kairos, into rest, into stillness, into time with God, into good time, good food, with good friends, 
a restorative time. And the lesson is clear. And here it is. The way of Jesus, the way of Jesus is to be growing in your love of people and in your ability to help those people. Paul Miller, Paul Miller is the one who noted this. He said, Jesus, he loved people and he had the power to help them, which meant he had a busy life. He was just a busy person. And if you believe in him and God's spirit is in you to make you more and more like him, as you become more and more like him, then you should expect a couple things to happen in your life. You should expect that you're going to, because of the work of the spirit in your life, you're going to find that you love people more and more. And as he matures you, he's developing in you a greater ability to, ha- to help them. And as you love people more and more, and as you develop into a person who can actually help people more and more, guess what? You're going to be busy too. So following Jesus is a cardio workout. It, it, it's, it gets your heart rate up. And I want to say, it's a good life. It's a good life. A life full of people. A life so full of giving yourself to people. So much coming and going that even at times, it spins out of control and there's no leisure. There's no good time. You have to recover that. You have to find it. There's not, sometimes it feels like there's not even times to eat. Moms, a life of your kids coming and going and it's so busy that you don't know how you're going to get dinner ready. It's, that's, a good, that's a good life. Right? It's a good life. Ashley and I have tried to model this for our kids. Excuse me, that we believe that that kind of life full of people like that is a good life. I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely sincere. You may not believe me when I say this. This is the most sincere thing I know to say to you is the hardest part of my life in being a pastor of a church, the hardest part is there are too many of you for me to know and love the way that I would like to know and love all of you. It's a good life, but here's the thing. If the way of Jesus is to be growing in your love for people and your ability to help them, and so you're reg- if, if that's the case, then you should expect to regularly feel overwhelmed by all the people and all their needs. If you're following Jesus, that will be a regular experience of your life. And if it's not, then you really need to question whether your priorities align with his. That's the kind of life Jesus wants to lead you into. It's also why he wants to teach you how to practice kairos and not just chronos. To learn the skill of choosing what is important over what's urgent. To come away and rest. And so Jesus is here inviting them and he's inviting us to stop trying to run your life for one minute and to trust him and to take some time to just be with him and let him serve you and tend to your heart. That's the gentle, kind Savior and shepherd he is. He wants to do that for you. But I wonder, how does that feel? I'd like for you to try to answer that question as I invite you, as he invites you into that, to come away by yourself to a desolate place and rest for a while. How does that feel? How does that invitation feel to you? Does it feel unnecessary? Does it feel intimidating? Does it feel impractical? Does it sound wonderful? Take a temperature of your heart. And then let's talk about it a little bit. You see, Jesus invites you to come away and rest out of the busy life that he calls you to, to also find rest. But there are a number of things we need to talk about then. Well, then why, why does it come so hard? Why is it that we don't rest? Why do we have such a hard time with this? And how is it that we can come to rest? And when will it finally start to happen that I learn how to do this work and rest thing that he calls me to here? You see those three things? They're the three points of the outline that I've given you. So we just want to take our time and walk through this text along those three headings by starting with first. So why is it? Jesus invites us, come away by yourself 
to a desolate place and rest for a while. But why is it so hard? Why do we find it so hard? Well, it's really a fascinating scene here. And we're really going to clue in on um, verse 50 of this text. The three points of the outline are really the three statements Jesus makes there. But I want you to see this, this, this scene of the disciples. Uh, the disciples are out, are out on the lake again. And have you noticed, in Mark's gospel particularly, bad things happen to them when they're on the water? Wouldn't you think they would have sold the boats by now and just been like, you know what? It's not worth it. Every time we go out there, something bad happens. And it's funny, I've been, to this, I've been to the Sea of Galilee, and you read about the storm. I mean, you know, it's, when you're there, you're like, really? Was it really? You know, like these big storms, it's, it's a lake, guys, basically. I mean, it's a lake. But nevertheless, the wind would come down, and, and so they just got into trouble when they got out there. And in the world in which the Bible was written, water was a symbol for the chaotic, unpredictable parts of life. It was a metaphor. And so in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, the earth, before it was created, there were three things that were said about the earth. It was formless. And it was void. And you know what the third thing was? It was watery. It was emptiness and chaos and there was water. And God then came and he brought order and goodness out of the chaos. And so the water is the symbol of anti-creation, of the chaos, of the the unpredictability, the, the chaotic things that happen in life. The disciples are out on the water, and that's exactly what's happening. And look at verse 48. It says they're battling a storm. They're making, I love this phrase, they're making headway painfully because the wind was against them. Anybody felt that way in recent days? Anybody, like, stay up at night with the wind blowing up against the, the, the house? I wonder, if it feel, I wonder if it describes how life feels. For many of us, I think it does, especially of late, making headway painfully because the wind was against them. And so the result, the result of enduring life like that, of just experiencing life like that, is too often what happens to us as we make our way, make headway painfully against the wind against us, is we can easily begin to lose heart. We lose heart. Jesus came to them in this experience, walking on the water, and look what he said, verse 50. He said, Take heart. You see that? Cheer up. Take heart. Diana Butler Bass said, we all experience headwinds and tailwinds in life. And headwinds are the hard things. They're the barriers. They're the wounds. They're the, uh, the wind that's in your face that you're fighting that's keeping you from getting where you want to go. And then there are tailwinds. We also have tailwinds. And tailwinds are the blessings. They're the advantages the good parts of life, the good parts of your childhood, the wind at your back, the, the gifts and the things that are, you know, where you truly experience the wind blowing from behind you. And we all have both, she says. And, 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 but we tend to ignore the tailwinds and pay more attention to the headwinds. And for Diana Butler Bass, it's an il- illustration of gratitude. She says gratitude, it's, this is in a book called Gratitude. She said gratitude is being able to remember the tailwinds when you're experiencing significant headwinds. Even when it's really hard, she says, you know. There, even when it's really hard, there are typically one or two problems, one or two things, maybe a few more than that, but just a few things that are kind of out of whack and not going well, but there's probably 50 or 75 or 100 blessings. But the key is to remain grateful and mindful of those blessings when you're experiencing the barriers. That's gratitude, which is why Paul When he writes to the Thessalonians, he says, rejoice when? Do you know it? Rejoice when? 
Always, not, re- not rejoice when it's going well. No, rejoice always, give thanks in all circumstances. He says, no matter, no matter what's going on in your life right now, no matter how hard it might feel, no matter what the force of the wind might be blowing against you, there is reason for you to rejoice and there's reason for you to give thanks. And so Diana Butler Bass says, you, this is what you have to do. You have to remember the tailwinds when you're enduring the headwinds. Now, the opposite of gratitude, and this is where it gets hard and maybe a little surprising, the opposite of gratitude then is discouragement. When you lose sight of the tailwinds, because the headwind you're rowing into is so strong, we all have headwinds, we all have tailwinds, but it's easy to imagine that our headwinds are uniquely difficult and everybody else has it easy. And the symptoms of discouragement are envy, resentment, self-pity, thwarted entitlement, pride. But here's the thing that landed on me this week, that the opposite of gratitude is discouragement. And that's hard. It's hard to even say because it's so easy to be discouraged. There's not a single person in the room this morning who's not discouraged about something, which is why the greatest gift you can give anybody is to just go, go hand out encouragement to people today the way I've been popping these Luden's cough drops for the last week. Just pass them out like candy. We all need to be encouraged. Amen? Are you with me? Anybody need to be encouraged this morning? The disciples were discouraged. Think about that word. Discouraged. They had lost heart. They were experiencing what Edwin Friedman calls a failure of nerve. They were without the inner strength and fortitude that they needed to stand firm against the storm. And when you lose your nerve like that, it's hard to relax. Right? I mean, it's hard to relax. And here's why that's a problem. This is a problem because there are always headwinds and tailwinds, which means <laughs> this, is, this is not the good news part of the sermon this morning. There's a baseline of hard. You with me? I mean, there's just a baseline of hard in life. It's always hard. Now, sometimes it's harder. And then... Only every now and then can it be hardest, but it's always hard. And so if it's always hard, then you need a certain something on the inside if you're ever going to find rest. Because things are never, hardly ever, exactly the way you wish they were. And so we have to stop, change strategies here, stop trying to engineer our circumstances in order to find you know, the good time and instead go all in on developing personal depth. And to do that, we have to fight for courage because C.S. Lewis said courage is not simply one of the virtues. It is the form of every virtue at the testing point, which means without courage, you never develop any of the other character qualities that you need. You won't ever develop patience or joy or perseverance. You'll give up too soon. You won't go through the hard thing that develops those things so that the next time you go through a hard thing, you have what you need. You've got to have courage. Without courage, you'll never find rest. You may vacate. You may have the means to relocate your work remotely from, 
you know, and work remotely from the beach or the mountains, but to really step away, to find an eremos, to put everything else on hold, right, to just be with God, to step out of the chronos and into kairos, it takes incredible courage. You have to be able to look past the headwinds and remember the tailwinds and give thanks and rejoice, and that's what it means. That's what it means to take heart. Jesus says take heart. He wants them to say, he like, give thanks, rejoice, don't forget all the th- I know this wind is blowing hard in your face. Don't forget all the things that are, that are at your back as well. And sometimes, sometimes you've got to get away and find your heart again. But sometimes you've got to deal with your discouragement and you've got to find your heart so that you can have the courage to get away. Do you see? But discouragement is the enemy. Discouragement in every one of us, so we're all, we're all sinners in the sight of God this morning because not a single one of us is immune from discouragement. We all need God to come and work in our lives in this way. So the second question then is, how, how can he do that? Where does, how do you find courage then? If discouragement is the problem, where does the courage come from? How can you find the courage and the strength and your poise and resolve to be a person who can step out of the, 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 the busyness and find a place to rest? You need a faith sight of the power and majesty of God is the answer the text gives. And this is exactly what happens to the disciples. Jesus came to them walking on the water. This is chapter 6, verses 45 through 52. And it says in verse 48, it's really interesting. It says he was about to pass by them. Do you see that? Look, I want you to get your eyes on it. So take a minute, find it in the worship folder or in your Bible, verse 48, because it's, it's odd. It says he was about to pass by them. Okay? He meant to pass by them. Now, what, what does that mean? It's very intentional language. And it's from the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 33, which we read earlier, Moses, Moses was going through a uh, pretty discouraging time. He, he had really lost heart. He was really at the end of his rope with the Israelites. He was ready to just be done with them. God was ready to be done with them. If you remember, they have this little powwow up on the mountain, and God says, those people drive me crazy. And Moses says, they drive me crazy too. And they're like just kind of going back and forth. And God says, I know what. Why don't we just get rid of them, and I'll start over with you. And Moses says, no, no, there's too much at stake for that. What I need is I need to see your glory. Moses has the intuition to know what I need is to see the beauty and the majesty and the glory and the greatness of God. And so he's discouraged. It's right after the golden calf. He's ready to throw in the towel. And it's a remarkable interchange. He says, oh, Lord, God says to him, he says, Moses, you're my man. I'm with you. You're my guy. I know you by name. And Moses responds and says, you know me by name, God, but I don't know you by name. Would you show me your glory? Would you make yourself known to me? Would you, would you reveal yourself to me? And God says, here's how the God answers it in Exodus 33, verse 19. Listen to this. It's intentional. He says, I will make all my goodness pass by before you. And I will proclaim my name. And then it says, God came down on the mountain where he was. And he put Moses in the cleft in the rock. And God passed by in front of him. And he proclaimed his name, and it was a revelation of God's character and his nature and his glory and his majesty. It was the the exact thing Moses needed to jolt him out of his discouragement. The same thing happens later in in the Old Testament. In 1 Kings 19, the prophet Elijah was discouraged. (laughs) I mean, he was in full-blown pity party mode. It was right on the heels of his defeat of the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. It was the high point of his ministry, and then Queen Jezebel put a bounty on his head, and he was on the run, and he ran away in fear. He laid down by a creek, and he basically said to the Lord, just kill me. Get it over with and just kill me. He's depressed. 
He's discouraged, and God came to him in that moment, and here's what it says in, in 1 Kings 19.11. The Lord passed by Elijah. Again, it was a revelation of God's glory meant to encourage Elijah's faith. So when Mark describes Jesus walking on the water, and then he uses that phrase, he says, he meant to pass by them. He's recalling these stories to make a point. He's seeing that Jesus walking on the water here is an even more real and more powerful revelation of the power and majesty of God than even Moses and Elijah experienced. Just as those experiences for those two men were meant to comfort and encourage them and jolt them out of their discouragement, to take their eyes off. See, the problem with both of them is they had taken their eyes off of God and put them on their circumstances. And God comes to say, no, take your eyes off of your circumstances. And, and, and he wants to cause them to marvel and think about his beauty and wonder and glory instead. It's the same here. There's a storm. Yes, there's wind in their face. Yes, but in the middle of that storm comes one walking on the water who is greater than the storm. You see it? And he comes to pass by, the maker of the sea, passing by, to make himself known. And look at what he says to them. He says, take heart. Look there, verse 50. Take heart. And it's just really simple. It is I. I'll give you one guess what that actually says in the Greek. Maybe you can guess it. Take heart. I am. That's what it is. I am. Which is the name of God. The I am that I am. This is Exodus 3, verse 14. It's that, it's that revelation of the name of God given to Moses there that describes God's self-existence and his self-sufficiency. He's dependent on nothing or on no one outside of himself. He is inexhaustibly great. And Jesus comes to them in, walking on the water, and he says, don't be discouraged. I am. The I am is here. It's me. I am the maker. I am the almighty. This storm is nothing in comparison to me. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. I mean, and don't you see, this is how you can come away and rest. When you get a faith sight like that of the power and majesty of the I am, Jesus said to the disciples, take heart. It's me. Don't be afraid. I'm here. And the text says this in verse 51, when he got in the boat, the wind ceased. And that, I think, is the point. If you remember the last time they were in the storm, Jesus spoke to the storm, and the storm calmed down. But these words were meant to calm them. He spoke to them. He says, take heart, it's me. Don't be afraid, I'm here. It's, everything's gonna be okay. And when that comfort, when that truth, when the comfort of that truth makes its way into your heart, then that is the thing that can settle you down no matter how hard you're straining against the headwinds. But the question is this, is Jesus in your boat? That's kind of cheesy, so let me say it like this. You know, that's not the title of the sermon. Is Jesus in your boat? But here's the lesson. Here's what that means. And it's, no, it's until he got in the boat, right? It's when he got in the boat, the wind ceased. I'm trying to make something of that. But here's the question. Do you know he's with you, even in the worst storm? Does, do his words have a home in your heart? Are you abiding in the truth? Are you holding? Are you clinging to his promises? Are your eyes focused on him or have they drifted? Have they drifted to 
whatever the storm is that you're going through, to the winds and the waves that, that, that's gathering around you. When Jesus got in the boat, the wind ceased. Is Jesus in your boat? Do you have a conscious sense of his power and his presence and his promises, even when it feels like you're torturously rowing into the wind and getting nowhere? If so, if so, then you will find rest. You'll be able to put your oars down and trust him. And here's the truth. And I was preparing for this as the hurricane was coming. And this just landed on my heart in a significant way. But here's the truth. Headwinds, we all have headwinds and tailwinds. Headwinds, as well as tailwinds, headwinds are are, are providences. Headwinds are providences. Listen to Psalm 148. The psalmist says, praise the Lord. Fire and hail, snow and mist. Remember, this is like Tuesday morning as this thing's barreling down on us. Stormy wind fulfilling his word. That's something. But here's the question. Is that truth frightening or is it comforting? Does it fill you with dread or delight? And there are questions you have to ask of yourself. Are you the captain of your own soul? I mean, to borrow a line from William William Ernest Henley, are you the master of your own fate? What if that headwind is driving you to where you do not want to go? But what if it's taking you in the very direction of your very worst fears, but it's exactly the place God is trying to get you because he means to save you from that place? What if in rowing torturously against the headwind, you're fighting him? Stormy wind fulfilling his word isn't that that's that's something isn't it but if that fills you with dread let me just be your friend and say i think you need to dig down into that a little bit do you not trust him and if not why not is there a root of unbelief is there bitterness towards god because of past hurt that you blame him for that is spread throughout the soil of your heart so that when the winds start to blow you you freak out and row as fast as you can to get as far away from God as you possibly can. Is your heart hard towards God? You see verse 52? That's their problem. Their hearts are hard. Is your heart, what about your heart? Is your heart hard towards God? Maybe that's why it's so hard for you to rest. And that's good news because if that's the case, then you can repent of that. You can start this morning turning away from that. But thirdly, let's just finish this up because my voice is about to give out. And let me just say, if you're anything like me, you read this and you think, okay, I, okay yeah, I get it, but, like, but, but when is it actually going to happen? <laughs> when, when, is, when is something going to change and I'm actually going to become a person who can take Jesus at his word and learn to trust him and settle down and not be quite so worked up in everything that I'm doing? When, when will I finally learn to come away and rest? And if you wonder that, if you're like me and you wonder, when will this happen? When will I stop being so afraid and trust Jesus and be able to relax? It says in the text, Verse 51, that they were utterly astounded. Do you see that? By Jesus walking on the water, they were shook. That word describes the opposite of calm and quiet. They were stirred up. They were troubled because they were afraid of Jesus, but they did not yet fear him. And there's a difference. I said this a few weeks ago. It's not enough to know that Jesus is the great I am. He comes walking on the water saying, I am. It's not enough just to know that he's the I am. You also have to know that he's good, that he's inexhaustibly great, and also inexhaustibly good. And it says, verse 52, that they were terrified because they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hard. See, their hearts 
Their hearts were hard because they were only convinced about his power, but they didn't yet trust his love. And if you think God's heart towards you is hard, then you will harden your heart to him. But when you see how wide open his heart is, in fact, to you, then you will open wide your heart to his love as well. And that's when you'll start to learn how to come away and be with him to rest. When you see that the great God is also a good God, then you will tremble, but it'll be for an entirely different reason. You'll fear him without being afraid of him. And his goodness will begin to melt your heart when you understand about the loaves. That's the key. So let's just take one more minute, go back and look at that scene from earlier. We're going to come back to it in a few weeks so we don't have to deal with all of it here, but we don't have much time. But what is it about the loaves? What is it specifically about the loaves? And Jesus walking on the water reveals that he is the I am. He is the Lord. Jesus feeding the 5,000 reveals that he is the Lord, our shepherd. Notice how the crowd is described. If you look up uh, in that earlier scene, verse 34, it says they were like sheep without a shepherd. And it's another loaded sentence. In the Old Testament, uh, the same wording is used to describe Israel as they wandered in the wilderness. They were, it's, it's kind of a, a, a um, it's something that the Old Testament prophets and writers repeat over and over again to describe the spiritual and physical desolation and need of God's people. They were just lost. They were desperate. They, they were just wander, wandering around with no leader and no real purpose or knowing what they were doing. And, and that's why these people followed Jesus everywhere he went. There were so many people, it says, they couldn't even eat. And when they tried to cross the Sea of Galilee, the people would run around to the other side and get there before, right? I mean, it's, it's amazing. Think about, I mean, just so Jesus is so self-aware that he, I mean, he's human too, remember? And he sees his men and he knows, okay, it's been a little much. We need to get away. So we're going to get out of here and we're going to go across the sea and we're going to get over to some place where we can be by themselves. And the crowd runs around the lake and is waiting, like waiting there. Like your kid is at six o'clock in the morning at the side of your bed, right? What are we going to do today? What are we going to do today? Jesus is tired. The disciples are tired. They needed a break. And here's what I love the most. And yet it says that when they came to what they thought was going to be a quiet place where they could rest and recuperate and recover, they went ashore. And then verses 34 and 35, it says, Jesus saw the crowds and he had compassion on them. And he began to teach them many things. Now, to me, that's the real miracle, to be honest, not even what comes next. The miracle was that Jesus' reflex was to be compassionate, not annoyed, because <laughs> when Drew saw the crowds, <laughs> he got back in the boat and rode out to the middle of the, right? He hid in the bottom of the boat. When Drew saw the crowds, he was annoyed at how needy people are. Not Jesus. No matter how tired he was, no matter how in need of some PTO days he and the disciples might have been, he saw the crowds and he couldn't help himself. He had compassion on them because that is the reflex of God's heart towards his people. Always. Jonathan Edwards said, the glory of God is 
The glory of God that draws us in and conquers our sins is not the sheer size of God. It's not the sense of his transcendent greatness. It is the loveliness of his heart. In other words, it's not his greatness, but his greatness and his goodness. So Dane Ortland and Gentle and Lily, he writes, The Christian life is the long journey of letting our natural assumptions about who God is over many decades fall away, being slowly replaced with God's own insistence on who he is. That's just describing repentance and faith. And so what does this particular text insist is true of God? Well, he is not safe. He can walk on water. Hello, he's a superhero. He's not safe. But you are safe with him. You hear that? He's not safe, but you are safe with him. He is not safe, but he is good. And therefore, you don't have to be afraid. In fact, that's what it means for you to fear him. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his, he sees the sheep and has compassion. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. This miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 here is a parable. He is feeding them with bread in the wilderness to meet their physical needs, but he himself is the bread of heaven, and his body broken on the cross for your sins is the true bread. And if you believe in him, if you eat his flesh and drink his blood and all that strange language there in John 6, it says, then you will have eternal life. And not only that, you will never hunger or thirst again. And that's the lesson of the loaves, that the great God is a good God. That the great God, the I am, who came down and said to Moses, you can see my backside, but you can't see my face, because if you look up on my face, you'll die. The great God is a good God. The great I am, he cares for us to his own hurt. He laid down his life for us. He is always working for and arranging for our good. And with Jesus, there is always more than enough. Everybody in the story ate. Look at verse 43, ate and was satisfied and they took up 12 baskets full of food. Everybody ate, everybody was full and there were 12 baskets of food left over. Guess what? That's what life with Jesus is like. Okay, you don't believe that. That's what life with Jesus is like all the time. So don't let your heart get hard. Just because the headwinds are so strong, remember about the loaves. The wave walker, the great I am, is the good shepherd. Psalm 23.1 is a familiar verse. In a familiar psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, and you can finish it. What's the next phrase? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I shall not want, which means he's got it all taken care of. You can trust him. Look at the lengths to which he's gone to love you. He won't fail you now. Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing is needful that he withholds. And so the psalmist says it like this, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, for those who fear him have no lack. Listen to this verse. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Listen, if you're here and your faith is in Jesus, let me speak this over you. You lack no good thing. I'm going to say it again. You lack no good thing. How would it change your life to believe that? The winds are raging. You're getting nowhere. You're torturously rowing against it. You still lack no good thing. God is not holding out on you. He's not holding back. He will not fail to keep his word. His promises are true. You're probably just tired. That's where all those bad negative thoughts about him are coming from. You're probably just tired. 
tired from trying to run the whole world instead of trusting him and ending up disappointed that you, as it turns out, aren't sufficient (laughs) for doing it all on your own. So if that's the case, see, if that's the case, that if you'd say, yeah, that's me, or if you're just weary from the work of love, you know, moms with the kids coming and going, coming and going out of the room a million times a day or coming and going to college and back or whatever it might be or the people coming and going and so many people that there's no time for leisure and you don't even have time to take care of yourself. If you are weary from that, it's what a, what a great life. But if you're weary from that work of love, come away today. Today's a great day to take a break. Isn't it? The Lord's day to spend the day with Jesus and let his gentle heart fill yours with the courage that you need to keep going because that is what he wants to do. And that's the invitation he offers this morning. But we say with the psalm, the, the, the hymn writer, when, when the hymn writer says, the king of love, my shepherd is, whose goodness ne- faileth never, I nothing, nothing lack if I am his, and he is mine forever. So let's pray uh, that Jesus would teach us uh, and give us the grace uh, to meet him in that quiet place so that he could minister to our hearts. So Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your Son, and Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are so gracious with us and so kind, that your friendship is so sincere and lovely to us, that you, as a friend, invite us, even in this moment, from to step away from the exhausting work of trying to save ourselves and rule the world with our own strength and power and creativity. We're not up for that task, and it's why we get so discouraged so easily so often Forgive us. Forgive us the pride of trying to live that way and give us instead the humility and the faith to look to you and to believe good things about you and to know that you are worthy of being trusted in everything and then to find from that just the sweet freedom and rest that can come in being people who are able to embrace their own limits because we know there's one who is without limit when it comes to his power and greatness and also without limit when it comes to his compassion and love and to put our lives in his hands knowing they're great hands to be in. So help us even now to sing, to remind ourselves of the tailwinds of the goodness of God that so fill our lives so that we might find our hearts again and take heart and be not afraid find the courage to love well and to rest well. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Don't try to live your life without your heart. It's a deadly thing to do. We're not made that way. But here's the good news is that if we do that work, you know, the way out of the way out of discouragement is gratitude. If we do that work of reminding ourselves of the, of the goodness of God that's following us, then it can give us the courage that we need in spite of whatever we might be facing, to say, listen, I know this to be true of him, and if it's true of him, it's always true of him, and I can trust it. Uh, and, and then to go, as he sends us into this great work of loving people, even to the points of exhaustion and being overwhelmed, but with the promise that he will always come to us in those places and invite us back into the rest that he gives. And isn't that great? And to learn to do that rhythm of life, knowing the promise of this benediction, that we are not alone, but because of the great work that Jesus has accomplished for us, the Father can now say these words, of blessing over our lives. And so receive this benediction as the promise of God's heart towards you and whatever he sends you into this week. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. 
Go in his peace.